everyone, I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. Hey, um, Charlotte, remember last week how you told that super sweet story about your dad and it was all like wholesome and stuff? <laughs> yeah. This series is essentially the complete opposite of that. Oh my god, you are totally right. It's a very interesting case, but holy shit, is it tragic. Just trigger warning, guys, this one does get quite heavy. Unfortunately, we know there is a lot of them out there, but today's subject is for sure a contender for worst fucking father ever. Yep, definitely, and uh, he sucked. He sucked for so many reasons, and we're going to get into that, but this is a case that we've had on our list since, I would say, the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think it was one of the very first ones on our list when we started it. I'm beyond excited to cover it. It's quite a crazy one. I know we say that so often because it's just the nature of the things that we cover, but it's such a roller coaster. It is time for a brand new series, dear listeners, and this one is absolutely unreal from start to finish. This is the story of the List family murders. On November 9th, 1981, John List killed his entire family, including his wife, their three children, and his own mother. His plan for the murders was so thorough that the bodies weren't found for an entire month. This gave John the head start that he needed to vanish. John List would not be found for another 18 years. When he was found, investigators were shocked to see that he was living under a different name and was married to a woman who had no clue who her husband really was. Like we said, this is truly an unreal story from start to finish. First of all, this may sound familiar to some of you. Most recently, this story served as an inspiration for the Netflix series The Watcher. Uh, John also inspired Jason Bateman's character in The Stepfather, as well as Kaiser Soze in The Usual Suspect. So apparently his absolute horrificness inspired a lot of things. A movie about the murders was also made called Judgment Day, the John List story, which is a very dramatic title, and there have been countless documentaries made about him. When we finish telling you about this case, you'll really understand why it has been used as inspiration for so many different things, because it's truly a horrifying tale of the dangers of materialism, self-righteousness, and of course, family murder. I have to say I really enjoyed the 1996 Forensic Files episode. It was it was really well done. I'm going to be posting a link for everyone on Patreon because I highly suggest watching it if you find this case interesting, which I'm going to promise you all right now you're going to. Oh, 100%. We're going to be discussing it more when we talk about how John List was caught later in the series. But for real, when you finish this, if you think this is interesting, unless you want to spoil it, check out the episode. <laughs> So we have covered murders of entire families in the past, and we've even covered another case of a father who brutally murdered his entire family and then himself. But John List is different. Like we mentioned, he was able to get away for 18 years. And we don't mean that he was out on the run evading police for 18 years. No. Nope, he essentially started himself a brand new life and just continued living on without them. 
He created a new identity and he lived a normal existence before he was finally found thanks to an episode of America's Most Wanted. And he got away with it for so long by just being a regular guy that didn't stand out or anything other than the fact that he was really, really bland. In the end, that would be what would help him get caught. And before we get started, we want to take a moment and talk about the concept of a family annihilator. This is sadly something that happens more than you'd think, oftentimes due to one parent wanting to remove themselves from their family without, you know, just filing for a divorce and walking away from the whole thing. So let's get to the definition. What is a family annihilator? It's really exactly what it sounds like. However, there are certain criteria that have to be met in order for it to be considered this type of crime. Family annihilation or familicide is defined as a murder where the senior member of the household, most often the father, kills either all or the majority of their family. Most of the time, the murderer will then end their own life. However, that's not always the case. A lot of you are probably thinking of grade A piece of human garbage Chris Watts, who murdered his wife and two children because he was having an affair. You know what I'm really fucking sick of? Mm-hmm. I have seen quite a few people talking about him being hot. Fuck, that makes me so goddamn mad. <laughs> Apparently he gets quite a bit of fan mail from women who are just smitten with him, which like, ew, ladies, what the fuck? Yeah, you gotta like... do better, guys. <laughs> Come on. To me, it makes absolutely zero sense to be attracted to someone who has, first of all, killed somebody. Mm -hmm. And I've bashed people who find serial killers attractive a fair few times on this show. But the idea of a man who killed his wife and kids because he was having an affair being someone who you want to bang is just straight up nonsensical to me. I will never understand that shit either. Like, fucking seek therapy if you find yourself attracted to a serial killer. Like, that's all I'm going to say. I don't think it's that hot of a take. <laughs> right? No, I think we can hopefully all agree on that one. Absolutely. The thing about these murders is that oftentimes they're something that people who knew the family would, quote unquote, never see coming. A 2013 study in the Howard Journal of Criminal Justice helped really narrow down what this meant. They looked at 71 cases that happened between 1980 and 2012 and saw that in 59 of those cases, the murderer was the father of the household, and most often, he was between the age of 30 and 40. Forensic scientist P.E. Dietz stated that, The family annihilator is usually the senior man of the house who is depressed, paranoid, intoxicated, or a combination of these. He kills each family member of the family who is present, sometimes including pets. He may commit suicide after killing the others, or may force the police to kill him. Interestingly enough, the killer is often not known to the police and is usually regarded as a well-respected member of the community. Now, you might be thinking, what would cause someone to even think about doing something as heinous as killing their entire family? They've narrowed it down to four main reasons. And we do want to note that these murders are often a combination of more than one of these. Sometimes the murders are a cultural honor killing. Oftentimes it's due in part to an untreated mental illness. One of the common reasons is a breakdown of the family, often an affair, divorce, or a custody battle. And of course, money problems. So why did John List kill his family? 
Well, he would later claim that he killed them to spare them from being poor after he lost a job and could no longer manage to pay for their very comfortable lifestyle. John was a painfully religious man who also saw that his family was starting to fall further and further from the church and wanted to end their lives before they could no longer get into heaven. You heard that right. In his sick and twisted mind, John List killed his family out of kindness. The whole idea was that he would kill them, and then years later, when he finally passed away, they would be reunited in heaven. Can we talk about that idea for a second? Oh my goodness. Delusional. Delulu, this man. (laughs) That would be the most awkward family reunion ever. Like... We're going to get to more of his delusion later, but he essentially thought that he was going to show up in heaven and that they would either forget about everything or that everything would just be fine. I think not, sir. Yeah, I think the fuck not, John. Let's Mm -hmm. get that out of the way. Jesus. That one... This whole case, I'm going to try not to, like, vomit all my thoughts too early because we have a lot to cover and it does truly get nuts. But this is infuriating. (laughs) Oh, yeah. 100%. This, like, none of this should have happened. These people should still be alive. Fuck John List. 100%. Okay, so clearly we have a lot to cover here. But as always, we want to explore what can lead someone to become the kind of person that we talk about on our show. Especially someone like John, who was just so notoriously boring. How do you go from being the most bleh person that anyone knows to being a full-blown, essentially, mass murderer? That is a very complicated question, and it's something that we're going to try to answer in this series. With that, let's get into the life of John List. John Emile List was born on September 17, 1925 in Bay City, Michigan to Alma and John Frederick List. The relationship between his parents was a bit of an odd one. Alma was 38 years old and John Sr. was 66. And if that age gap doesn't gross you out, the fact that there's a ton of reports to suggest that the two were first cousins uh, just might. Alma was his second wife, and while John would be their only child together, John Sr. had two other children who were already adults. I'm going to warn all of you right now, there's going to be a lot of people in this story named John. Alma List was incredibly overbearing and doted on her son. She raised him to believe that the closer he was to God, the better of a human being he was, and therefore anyone who wasn't as close to God as they were wasn't good enough for them to associate with. Little John was one of those kids whose best friend was his mom. She dressed him in little suits, and he essentially acted more like his mother than his peers. She'd often tell them that he wasn't allowed to play with them or that he didn't like being messy. It probably wouldn't shock you, but, well, we'll point it out. John List really didn't have any friends, even at a young age. He just wasn't a fun person to be around, like, at all. And his dad was locally known as the town party pooper. Like, overall, the family wasn't very liked. They spend the majority of their time at church, where John List Sr. taught Sunday school. His father, on the other hand, couldn't have been bothered to spend much time with John and often ignored him. His mother would make up for that by giving him even more love and attention. Simpsons fans, I personally picture a mix between Millhouse and Martin Prince here. I can absolutely see it, for sure. (laughs) 
unlike many of the people we've covered on the show, John List didn't really have a bad childhood. It wasn't overly exciting by any means, but he was well taken care of and wasn't abused in any way, shape, or form. He just really didn't have that many friends. And he didn't stand out a ton either. A ton of people who went to school with him would later have a hard time coming up with any memories of John that stood out. His father passed away while he was in his teens, which brought him and his mother even closer together. And of course, the closer he got with his mom, the less he wanted to be around kids his own age. One former classmate described John by saying, He was just there. He was always in the background. By the time John finished high school, World War II was in full swing and he joined the army where he would work as a lab tech. After that, he began studying at the University of Michigan, where he discovered one of his true loves, numbers. Yep, he fell in love with math and completed a degree in business administration. He continued his education and would eventually earn a master's degree in accounting. Something to point out is that the majority of people that he went to university with would later have little or no memory of him other than the fact that he was well-dressed and religious. Around that time, the Korean War had started and John was called back to serve. He was stationed at Fort Eustace in Virginia, and this is where he would meet his wife, Helen Morris Taylor. Let's get into poor Helen before we go any further, because her entire story is just unfortunate as hell. I mean, her middle name was Morris. Yeah, that's not like a double-barreled last name. That's her middle name. Yep. Must so, be like a family name or something. Sure. Yeah, it's, I mean, okay. So Helen had actually been married once before to the love of her life. Unfortunately, he died in the Korean War, and she very much still thought the world of him. And she'd often bring up how great he was when her and John would fight. And this was all despite the fact that her first husband contracted syphilis and then proceeded to give it to Helen. She also had a daughter from that marriage named Brenda. Brenda luckily got the hell away from the family quite quickly and would not be in the home when the family was killed. During the birth, Helen was blinded in one eye by the doctors when they accidentally splashed a chemical into her eyes. I can't, uh, like, that is absolutely horrendous. How does that even happen? That's like number 576 that we've had on this show for reasons not to give birth. Honestly, and unfortunately, you can see the effects of this in photos of her. To add to her bad luck, she met John and the two began to date soon after. Here's something interesting. She got pregnant very shortly after because apparently John was super religious, but not religious enough to avoid premarital sex. Why does that not surprise me at all? Apparently he would go on and on and on about how horrible it was to have sex out of marriage, and the entire time he's banging Helen. So on top of everything else awful about him, he's also a hypocrite, so love that. Mm-hmm. The two got married very shortly after she told him about the pregnancy, and they tied the knot in December of 1952. The two would eventually settle in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where John began working as an accountant at a paper company. By the late 1950s, he was making great money and had landed himself a supervisor role. During this time, the couple would have three children, Patricia, John Jr., and Frederick. 
On the outside, it appeared that the List family had everything. Behind closed doors, things were far from happy. John was a meticulous fuddy-duddy who would huff and puff whenever something was out of place. He was the kind of guy who would wear a full suit on a hot summer day, and he was just difficult to talk to, and overall, just a dull person, like the kind of guy you just didn't want to be around. Helen, on the other hand, had slipped into a deep depression and had taken up drinking. She was an angry drunk who would often berate John. John became employed with Xerox and moved the family to Rochester, New York, where they relocated yet again. He was further promoted and eventually was offered a high-paying job as a vice president and controller of a bank in Jersey City in 1965. Now, that's what everyone thought, because yes, he was bouncing around from job to job a lot, but it really wasn't for the reasons that he was telling everyone. He wasn't getting promoted at all, he was getting fired, and somehow just managing to get decent jobs despite that. Again, he was incredibly difficult to be around, and this was during a time where work culture was everything. A man in his position was expected to host dinners for his bosses and just be an overall fun guy. Like, I think of the show Mad Men. It was that kind of vibe. Yeah, being a controller and a vice president of a bank, I would imagine is quite a big deal in kind of like the corporate financial world. Oh, yeah. Like, you, you're a bigwig at that point. You have to act like one. Mm-hmm. And speaking of, let's take a second to talk about the house that they bought. Oh my god. Okay, I think house is too small of a word because this was a straight-up mansion. So Helen demanded that the family have all the finer things in life. When she found out that they were going to be moving to New Jersey, she refused to look at any of the houses John had told her that were within their budget. Instead, she chose the largest house in the neighborhood. And I she have sure to say, did. Like, it was stunning. Mm-hmm. The house named Breeze Knoll had 19 rooms, three stories, multiple fireplaces, and a full-blown ballroom in the middle of the house. The house was also outfitted with as much art and fine furniture as the family could afford. To everyone on the outside, it looked like the List family was living the American dream. And that couldn't have been further from the truth. Everything about his jobs wouldn't come out until far later, but we just wanted to point out that even at the start of all this, much of John List was very, very much a facade. He never told his wife about his bouts of unemployment, and instead, he would leave the house every morning and sit at the train station until it was time to go home. Yeah, he'd basically just show up at the train station with a book and just read for the entire day. Meanwhile, his his savings are just being drained and he's slowly becoming more and more stressed out. Like, sir, why are you putting yourself through this hell? He was taught from a young age that asking for financial help was just straight up not an option ever, no matter what. About this, John would later say, I grew up with the idea that you should provide for your family and to do that, you had to be a success in the job you had or you're a failure and that was not a good thing to be. Alma List moved in with the family around this time. They set her up in the third floor apartment. When John moved her in, he almost instantly began draining her bank account because he wasn't able to keep up with the bills. 
We're going to post pictures of this house and I want y'all to think about just how much it would cost to keep the lights on in a place like that because between the mortgage, keeping the house functioning, and then making sure Helen is kept happy, John was being bled dry financially and it was making him absolutely crazy. Well, it's just so excessive. Like, guys, you have three kids and mom living there. Like, yeah, maybe you need a few more bedrooms than the average family, but you don't need 19. Like, you do not need that big of a house. Ever. I'm I'm picturing, (laughs) like, the home alone house, but bigger, basically. It basically is. Oh, man. They... The house wasn't the only thing stressing John out. By this point, most of the family had stopped attending church, and this horrified him. Not only that, their oldest daughter, Patricia, was in high school, and she was discovering herself. She was listening to rock music, telling people that she wanted to be a witch, and she did something that John really hated. She joined the drama club. I was part of drama club. Get fucked, John. (laughs) I was, I liked rock music. I told people I wanted to be a witch and I was in the drama club. Like, I'm sorry, John. Fuck you. Go fuck yourself, my guy. (laughs) I feel bad for everyone involved here, obviously, but I feel so bad for Patricia because she just seems like a normal little young lady. Like, she was well-liked and she wanted to have friends and she wanted to have a life. She just wanted to be a normal teenager. And it seems like out of all of the kids, John, of course, had it out for her the most. She was once caught smoking cigarettes by John, which infuriated him. That entire incident is said to have been a huge turning point for John. Apparently that night, she was picked up by police around midnight. She was out smoking with a friend and they picked them both up and called their parents. John answered the phone and showed up shortly after, stone-faced and quiet. It was noticed by police that he didn't rush to pick up his daughter. Instead, he showed up with his hair freshly washed and dried and in his signature suit and tie. This was in the middle of the night. A lot of parents would respond to something like this by punishing their children, maybe raising their voice or even hitting them. I mean, this was the 60s after all. Not John, though. He didn't say much. He had a really healthy way of dealing with things because the majority of the time that he'd get mad, he'd just kind of mumble to himself and then continue to bottle up his emotions, which, as we all know, is like the prime way to deal with your emotions. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. And he was the kind of guy who, surprise, surprise, he got mad really easily. This, of course, would prove to be a deadly combination. He did lose his temper on occasion, usually with Patricia. Whenever she wanted to go out and see her friends, he would call her a slut and tell her that she was being immoral and would go to hell. And I have to say, talking to your kid like that is just guaranteeing that they're going to rebel. Yeah. um, How about we don't call our teenage daughters sluts, please and thank you, or our teenage sons, for that matter. (laughs) How about we just like don't call people sluts unless it's in a fun way? Yeah, sluts is fine in a fun way, but like, let's not be insulting with it. Fuck you, John. Soon after this, John would apply for a firearms license. This is something that's going to be important later. The longer John remained unemployed, the more the bills piled up. Eventually, he blew through his mother's entire life savings. It looked like he was going to lose everything. And again, remember that his entire family has absolutely no idea about any of this. They think everything is fine. Can you imagine? Because they still think he's going to work. 
How were they supposed to know that during all of this time he was lying and planning their murders? There, uh, there was one incident. Yeah, and this one is honestly just bone chilling. One evening, the family was having dinner together. Just like a regular dinner meal. Until John cleared his throat and asked the family, Hey, what do all of you want done with your bodies when you die? Which, I mean, probably at either of our houses is not a strange question to ask. Or, you know, maybe it's a fair question to ask perhaps your parents or even your partner. But to ask your kind of like teenage and younger children this out of the blue just strikes me as being beyond bizarre. He would later say that he thought he was being clever by asking them this. That's why I don't buy the excuse of like, oh, they were straying from the path of God and I just wanted to save them. It's like, dude, you were just a controlling asshole. Yep. He had recently found a souvenir World War II 9mm that he had purchased a while back. He also found a 22. And an interesting note here is these guns were not why he applied for the gun license. He actually didn't even wait long enough to get that gun. You know what kind of just gets me here? And you mentioned this. He could have very easily gone to his family and told them what was going on. They didn't need to live in a mansion. They could have easily downgraded and lived within their means in a house that the majority of us would still consider a really great place to live. 100%. But we both know it probably would never have been good enough because Helen would not have accepted it. And speaking of Helen, by now her health had begun to steadily decline. And if you found yourself scratching your head and wondering what happened, well, she never told John about the syphilis that she had contracted from her previous husband and just didn't bother getting any kind of treatment for it. So her symptoms just got worse and worse. Between that and her drinking, she was in pretty rough shape, which only solidified to John that between the financial hardships and looming eternal damnation on the horizon, there was only one thing he could do. Murder his entire family. And that's where we are going to pick up things next week with part two of the List Family Murders. We really wanted to set the scene here, so to speak. Next week, we're going to be getting into the murders themselves. Because there is a lot to unpack here. I just have such a hard time understanding how murdering your entire family is the best solution you can come up with. Divorce is an option, you guys. I know it's long and arduous, but is it worth murder? Absolutely not. Go out for cigarettes and never come back, John. Like, you've got other options. Honestly, if if you don't, like, if, please let your family live just because you're a real piece of shit. Just, like, walk away. Yeah, leave. You know what? And, like, we're gonna see later in the series that this isn't exactly going to work out well for him. Not because he got caught. You're, you'll see. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but <laughs> let's just say like he's an idiot and none of this is going to work out in his favor. Okay. So we'll, we'll save any more thoughts for the next episodes. So it is that time in the episode again, where we take a brief moment to thank our stunning grim VIPs and up over on Patreon. Woo. A huge thank you to Bob, Lisa, Pink Flamingo 20, Atlantean Jedi, Brian, Hillary, Judy, Kevin, and Mudkip. Bunch of beauties, if you ask me. We appreciate the hell out of you guys. Thank you all <laughs> so, so, so much. If you're listening on a platform that allows you to rate us, please consider leaving a five-star rating. That helps us a huge amount. 
follow us on all the social media things if that's your cup of tea go check out our merch as well you can find all the links to those things down in the description thank you all for listening this has been the The grim Grim curriculum dina have you seen the movie poltergeist the original 1982 yes i have did you know that real skeletons were used for a sequence in the horror movie because it would have been cheaper than getting special effects ones? <sighs> That's one hell of a cameo, isn't it? It really is. Oh. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.